invite you to remain standing for our scripture reading. We'll be reading from Luke chapter 19, verses 37 through 40. Let's read God's good word together. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. At the center of the Christian faith is the passion of the passionate Christ. That's what theologian Jürgen Moltmann says. You may be familiar with that phrase. If, if you're my age or older, you think of maybe the Mel Gibson movie um, from a few years ago. We've used that phrase for a little bit longer than that, but we talk about the passion of Jesus Christ. That comes from the Latin word for suffering, um, for his suffering and his death on the cross. But there's a twofold meaning to that word in English. I don't know if it has that in Latin or not, maybe, but what, what it insinuates in English is also a passion, a strong desire, motivation. And it was Christ's passionate love for us that motivated his passionate suffering on the cross. That's at the center of everything that we believe, his desire for all people, his passion for us. And as we've been going through the last few weeks, we've been studying from the Gospel of Luke. One of the things that we've seen is that us is always bigger than we think it is. We think it's maybe me and mine. And uh, Jesus says, no, it's bigger than that. And we think, well, it's, it's other Christians then. Jesus like, nope people beyond that too. It's, well, people who, who look like me or live in my country or any of those who believe the right things. And Jesus is like, nope, not just them. He keeps expanding the circle and helping us realize that the people of God are, is a far bigger category than what we would make it for ourselves. He's continually expanding the boundary, inviting other people in, even people who are outsiders. People have been cast out and even outlaws as we see today. Jesus is continually expanding the circle and welcoming people in. And so that's what we're looking at today, and particularly his passion and what that passion led him to. And so we've been going through the Gospel of Luke. One of the things that we've seen is that Jesus told story after story where the nobody was the somebody who did the right thing. And so whenever you hear the parable of the Good Samaritan, we all know how that goes. I mean, the, the phrase has entered our lexicon. You know, it's a stranger who helps somebody they didn't know. And uh, that's not how, how they read it. They knew the Samaritan was the bad guy, except in this story, he wasn't. Jesus flipped the script on them. And the one who was supposed to be the nobody ended up being the somebody. And that's what he did again and again. And one of the things that we see, and I love the way Pastor Mark put this a few weeks ago, with God, there are no nobodies. And anybody can be somebody in Jesus' name. There's no one who is a nobody. If you feel that way about yourself, then Jesus has good news for you. You're not. You are somebody to God. And if you feel that way about somebody else, then I've got maybe bad news for you. <laughs> is that Jesus, that's not how Jesus sees them. Jesus says, no, they are somebody too. Everybody is somebody in Jesus' name. Because as we read, as Jesus says in Luke 19, 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the who? The lost. And uh, that word can have some baggage sometimes for us in 21st century America and in English, but uh, whenever something's lost, what that means is that it's valuable, right? And whenever you're running late and your keys are lost, 
that matters, right? Those matter a lot. And, and what we see is that Jesus reached out to people who everyone else wrote off, but they were valuable to him. And so that's a part of who we are here. Saving the lost is what drove Jesus. It's also what drove the planting of this church when uh, Pastor Mark and Chantel started it, uh, pushing 25 years ago. And it's what continues to drive us today. It's that passion for people who are outside, who are neglected, who are alone, and in welcoming them in, just as Jesus did. And so we're planted here now to be used by God to seek the lost, the hurt, the hungry, the lonely, and the hopeless. That's why we're here. And the way that we do that, I mean, the way that we do that is by welcoming all, by loving others authentically, and by shining our light wherever we go. It's not just something that happens whenever we're here together and we're nice because you're a guest and you might want to join. We carry that light with us wherever. Really, we expect our people, you're shining that light everywhere you go in everything you do because it's a part of who we are, because Christ has changed us, and we seek to live the way that he lives and the way that he teaches us to live. And so as we go about our lives, we trust God to do what only God can do, and we trust Jesus to lead us and to and in what we are to do, what he calls us to, not what we can't do, but what we can do, what we're uniquely called to do. Because the problem that we run into, the problem that uh, people of faith run into is that Christians, as uh, Adam Hamilton puts it, Christians have too often become the Pharisees Jesus was pushing against, too quick to judge, to exclude, to leave people feeling not loved, but hurt as if they were outsiders and outcasts. That is the opposite of what the gospel does, and yet we get it wrong sometimes. I mean, you may have been hurt by that exact experience that Adam Hamilton is describing. That's not who Jesus calls us to be. And so we work really hard here to make sure that we never find ourselves doing those things, that we're animated by love. And we do that by following the example of Jesus. And and so we see that in the way that he spent his life, the way that he taught, and particularly we see that in the last week of his life, and that week starts with Palm Sunday. And uh, this is the day that we celebrate, of course. You came in with the palm branches and and waved those, and and that was the way that Jesus entered Jerusalem for the last time. Um, As uh, he was teaching, he was in the city of Jericho, um, hanging out with this dude named Zacchaeus. Maybe you sang about him when you were little. And uh, and after this, after he had uh, said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And that was the journey that he took. And this was not just like a stroll from Jericho. It was actually, um, there's something like 2,500 feet of elevation gain from Jericho to Jerusalem. And so this was a, a pretty serious journey that he was undertaking. He would have maybe been a little bit worn out by the time he got there. And uh, this is where he ended up just before he entered Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. That's where the photo is taken from. And so uh, you can see the big gold dome. That's the Dome of the Rock um, that's on top of the Temple Mount where the temple used to stand during the time of Jesus. And so that's where he was headed. And so he had undertaken this journey. He walks uphill for roughly six to eight hours. That's approximately how long that journey would have taken. And then he gets to the Mount of Olives and begins his entry into Jerusalem. And, And whenever he gets there, he asks his disciples to get a donkey for him. Now, that's kind of strange, right? You've walked for like six or eight hours, and, and like you've done the hard part. You've gone up. I mean, part of it is because like after you've walked for that long, like any change in elevation hurts, right? But uh, that's, that's not actually why he did it. And, and what he's actually doing is fulfilling prophecy and telling them about who he is. This is what we read in the prophet Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king 
comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so Jesus knows this scripture, and he's showing the people who he is by choosing to ride on a donkey. He's also showing what kind of king he is by doing that, because he chooses to enter on a donkey. Now, you can imagine, this, this is similar to whenever kings would go out to battle, and whenever they'd come back, people would go out and would meet them, and then would accompany them the rest of the way into the city. And you can think of a, a king who was victorious on, on, in battle. Do you think they would have been riding on a donkey? Like, probably not. Not the most like dignified animal to ride on. I don't know if you've done that at like a petting zoo, but you know, that's prob- no one's looking impressive on a donkey. That's, that's not how it works. And, and I mean, they would have been on, on war horses. I mean, you would have found the biggest, most, strongest, most majestic looking horse that you could have found. That's how you would have shown that you were a king, that you're someone of power. That's not the kind of king that Jesus is. And he shows that in his choice of how he enters the city on a donkey with humility a humble king. And so he enters Jerusalem as the long-expected king who had set things right. He's fulfilling the expectation of the Messiah who had come so the people would know that he was the one who was to come. He was the one who was going to finally set things right, to set the people free. But it didn't enter into, it didn't happen in the way they expected because what they expected was a conflict with Rome. They, they had been oppressed. Um, the Romans had been, um, had been oppressing them for around 100 years at that point and, uh, and the Greeks and others before that. And so they were ready to be free, to finally have this, this, this occupying force driven out. And by entering as a king, Jesus became a threat. He was a threat to Rome because in Rome, there's only one king and that's Caesar anyone else is a threat to him. And so by entering in that way, by revealing who he is, revealing himself as king, Jesus is, is getting himself into trouble because he's setting himself up as a rival to the ones the, say, the, the, ones the Romans say is king. He's setting himself up as a rival to Caesar, to this other kind of king. He, he, so he not only does that, he challenges the Roman authorities, but he also challenged the religious authorities of his day. We see this frequently throughout the Gospels as he's arguing with Pharisees and scribes and other religious leaders, but, but this continues as he enters because the first place that he goes after he comes into the city of Jerusalem is the temple, and this is what happens whenever he gets there. Then Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling things there, and he said, "'It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer.'" but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people kept looking for a way to kill him. And so he comes into the temple. He sees that things are not right. Luke isn't really clear about what exactly is going on there. Um, whenever you were in the temple, you didn't use Roman currency. You had to you use the temple shekel. You used the, the currency of your own people. And so there, there was currency exchange that happened there. It's possible that the rates that people were charging were um, you know, not fair. They, you also would buy animals in order to sacrifice. And so that way, if you're traveling from afar, you, know, you didn't have to get on a boat and bring all of your livestock with you to offer. And so um, that was happening there. It may have been that people or charging outrageous sums for the animals. Whatever that is, Jesus is coming and he's calling that out and saying this is wrong. And so he, he's angered the Romans by presenting himself as a king. He's angering religious authorities by challenging the things that are happening in the temple. And he's setting himself up for what's to come. And yet the reason that he does all of this, it's not because he's trying to put on a show. It's not for his own glory. It's for us. It's the passion that drives him to welcome all people into the people that he is creating, to save the lost, the hurting, and the outcast. 
And so he continues teaching throughout the week until he comes to Thursday. And that's the day that today we call Maundy Thursday. Jesus wouldn't have, have called it that because it's what we call it about him. It's because that's the day that he gave a, a new commandment, the mandatum novum. That's where we get Maundy. Uh, anyway, I know everyone's like, thank you. I wanted to learn some Latin in church today. <laughs> You're welcome. I know that's why you came. But, but it's Monday, Thursday, the day that, that he, he gave them a new commandment to love one another. And that's the, because that's the way that he lived. And so on the night, this would be the night that he's arrested. And on that night, he celebrates the Passover meal with his apostles. And you can think if you had the, uh, the choice of spending your last night in any way that you wanted, how would you do it? And that's what Jesus chose to do. He chose to break bread with his disciples to remember the story of the Passover when God delivered the people from slavery in Egypt. And so this is what he says, uh, what Luke says. When the hour came, Jesus took his place at the table and the apostles with him. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And so they were at this meal. There was a certain way that you did this. There was a liturgy. A liturgy is kind of the, the way that we, it means the work of the people, but it's what we talk about, you know, the things that you say, like good morning saints, good morning sinners. That's part of our liturgy. And so there was a set liturgy in which the people would remember the way that God delivered the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. But Jesus changes that. He changes the liturgy, and instead of just a remembrance of what was happened, he instituted a new sacrament. That's what we call communion, commemorating the things that would soon take place, the things that would happen to him that would change everything for his followers. And so this is how he did that. Then Jesus took a loaf and when he, a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he did the same with the cup after supper, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so instead of remembering the unleavened bread that would have been eaten by the people of Israel, he says, This is my body, which is broken for you. And he takes the cup and says, This is my blood, which is poured out for you. He, he tells them what is coming, and they somehow miss the message as uh, maybe you've had this experience before. You've given really clear instructions to someone, and then they do what they wanted to do in the first place, right? That's about where Jesus' disciples are that night. But he tells them, I'm going to sacrifice myself for you, for you. And we remember that every time we gather. That's, uh, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And so every time we worship together, except for Good Friday, which uh, is coming up, um, we celebrate communion. And whenever we do that, we're made one with Jesus and all of his followers. It unites us as people. The way that Paul says it, he says, this bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Therefore, we who are many are one because we all share in the one loaf. And so as we share in that meal, it unites us with all of God's people across time and across space. And again, it's not the people who just hang out at Acts 2 United Methodist Church. It's not just people who are United Methodists. It's not just people who look like us or have about the same level of wealth in us, and therefore we're comfortable hanging out with them. It's all people, and particularly the ones who are left out. And we're united with all of those people, and everyone who comes is welcome. There's always enough for everyone at Jesus' table. And yet, the disciples don't quite get it, right? They're kind of like us. They miss the significance of what he's doing entirely because after the supper is over, they, they, well, this is how Luke puts it, a dispute also arose among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. 
that's, that's how it goes sometimes, right? Jesus is like, look, I'm, I'm about to die. I'm going to sacrifice my body. And they're like, wait a second, Jesus. So which one of us is the best? Like, who's your number two? Just like, do you see what I'm doing over here? <laughs> this, this is not really a discussion for now. But, but Jesus, enter- I mean, he entertains the question. He tells them, in the kingdom of God, the one who's the greatest is the one who serves. It's the one who serves, not the one who has all the answers, not the one who has the highest status. It's the one who serves. So Jesus asked them, he says, for who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? And uh, we, know, we know the answer to that, right? Obviously, the one at the table is the one who's greater, right? I mean, having servants is better than being one. I mean, do, do we agree about that, right? I mean, you go to a restaurant and pay to have people serve you, not to serve them. That's, that's how that works. And, and yet, who, how is Jesus among us? I'm among you as one who what? who serves. The one who is greater than all of them, who had just been welcomed as a king, is one who came to serve, because that's who he is. Again, this is Jesus who is driven by a passion for all people to serve and to love them. And that's the example he sets for all of us. If we really want to be great, it's not about how much career success we have. It's not about how great our family looks on Instagram, although everyone, all of your families look awesome on Instagram. You're wonderful. It's about being ones who serve who lay down what we want, and who serve others, who seek the good of those around us. And that's the passion that drove Jesus. That's the reason why whenever he came to the cross, he found himself anxious and alone. Because after the supper, he leads his disciples out to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is a, a, an olive grove, and they went there to pray. Luke says that this was a place that he, uh, this was his custom to pray there. And, and whenever they get there, when they reach that place, he said to his disciples, pray that you may not come into the time of trial. Then Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. You know, sometimes whenever we hear this story, I don't know about you, I've heard this story every year my entire life and uh, many times throughout the year, but particularly this time of the calendar. I I hear it a lot. And sometimes we're just like, yeah, that's what Jesus does. That's a normal thing. You know, you go and and you get crucified and then you rise from the dead. And, And we forget that he was a person and he was not looking forward to suffering. It wasn't like he was like, great, like, I I love hurting. This wasn't like a gym workout, you know, where it's like, bring the pain. That wasn't wasn't his thing. He also wasn't just a mindless robot. He didn't just go about it like nothing. Uh, He did not want to suffer. And yet, the reason for his suffering warranted it. He didn't want it, but it was more important to him to save us than his own safety. That's what he valued because he was passionate for his people. And so he undertook it. He said, and what's beautiful about this, he said, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And that may have been a prayer that he learned from his mom, because if you remember whenever Mary found out that she was going to become pregnant and uh, all of her plans for her life were about to go out the window because she was going to bear the Messiah, what did she say? She said, let it be with me according to your will. The same prayer that her son prays as he's facing the greatest trial of his life. He didn't want it, but he chose it for us. And so hours after, after, hours after uh, promising that he, that he would die for Jesus, Peter denies his friend and his Lord. 
right? He's, he can't even stay awake whenever Jesus asks him to, to pray with him. And then he, not only that, but he's like, no, Jesus, I'll, I'll do whatever you want. He says, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison and to death for you. And uh, just a few hours later, after Jesus is arrested, he's taken. And this is what Peter does. Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about when he was asked if he, was, if he knew Jesus. And at that moment, while Peter was still speaking, the cock crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him before the cock crows, today you will deny me three times. He went out and wept bitterly. And so Jesus goes to the garden. His disciples can't even stay awake with him. And whenever he's arrested, they abandon him. He's denied by his closest friends. And he's betrayed by Judas, one of his followers. He endures all of this. And then he endures the suffering that is to come. If you go to Jerusalem, you can walk the, the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering is what that translates to. And you can walk from the place where uh, Jesus was tried before Pilate to the place where he was crucified. And uh, it's a long walk. Uh, it would have been extremely painful for him, but that's the walk that he chose to undertake for us. And, and by the time he got to where he was going on Good Friday, by the time he got to the cross and the suffering, his disciples, the ones who had been celebrating the coming of the king, they looked like fools by Good Friday. This one, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He didn't look very blessed by the time that he was arrested and had been sentenced to death on the cross. Because the cross, you know, it's, again, it's something we're desensitized to. We see it so often in our culture. I mean, you see it on half the bumper stickers on half the cars that you pass. The cross was a symbol of shame and fear. It was a warning to anyone who would stand against Rome. It was a particularly gruesome way to die, and it was public. And crosses would be left up after people died on them as a warning. This is someone who tried to stand against Rome, and this is what happened to them. And let that be a lesson to you if you think about trying to resist us. That's what it was. It, it was not something, there was not a noble way to die. And so that is where Jesus ended up as someone who had challenged the authorities, who would come as a king. Because at the end of his life, Jesus was tried, he was tortured, and he was put to death as an outlaw, a victim of capital punishment, someone who had been put to death. And so this is how Luke tells it. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And it's a reminder to us. You know, sometimes we look at the cross and uh, it's not something we want to talk about a lot. It's not, I don't really like talking about crucifixion and spending a lot of time there. It's, we think sometimes like that's, that's kind of morbid. And yet we need to focus on the reality of it because it's a reminder of the suffering that exists in the world. It's also a reminder to us of the evil that humans are capable of. And not just other humans, but it's a reminder of the evil that each of us is capable of. There were good people in the crowd that went along with what was happening. And that can happen to any of us. Alexander Solzhenitsyn says the line that divides good and evil passes through every human heart. Each of us is capable of that. And it's easy to tell ourselves that evil is just something that happens out there, that people who do bad things do so because they're bad people and we're not like that. We know that's not true. Each of us is capable of that, and we need to remember. We also need to remember that it's possible for us to be complicit in evil whenever we're silent, when things like the crucifixion are happening. Those things continue to happen today, 
And each of us is capable of either participating it or just allowing it to pass us by and saying, well, that's too bad. They shouldn't have done that. But it also lets us know not just of what we're capable of, but it also reminds us that there is still suffering in the world, that all of us experience that, and some of us experience that to a greater degree than others. But whenever we are suffering, the suffering of Jesus lets us know that we are not alone. We are not alone in suffering. And it's a reminder that he knows exactly what we're going through because he's experienced it himself. This is what the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, only the suffering God can help. Because otherwise, what does God know of our suffering? He's gone through it. And Bonhoeffer wrote that as someone who had been sentenced to death, who was in a cell just waiting his execution by the Nazis because he had resisted Hitler. Only the suffering God can help. And in Jesus, God knows our suffering because he endured it himself. God is not apathetic to our suffering, but freely chooses to enter into it in Christ. He chooses to suffer with us because of his passion for us. And so we choose to, to suffer alongside him, to enter into the life of following him. It's what um, theologian Jürgen Maltmann calls it, Christ's road, the way of Christ. This is what he says. He says, men and women who take Christ's road take up the struggle of life against death. And as a result, they will get to feel the violence of the powerful who spread death because they live at other people's cost. And just like Jesus suffered because of his desire to welcome people, to reach out to them, to stop the forces that deal death, that'll happen to us if we say yes. But that's the example that Christ gives to us because of his love for his people. He says, there are still people who are being crucified, who are being made to suffer, who are being tortured, and that is not what I'm about. And if you follow me, then that can't be what you're about either. And in fact, you have to stand up against that as well. Because in a world of needless suffering, Jesus stands for those who suffer and against oppression. He stands for those who suffer and against all forms of oppression. And he invites us to do that as well. In fact, he commands us to, because that's how we love our neighbor. And we've seen so much of this senseless violence that continues to pervade our world. I mean, just this week, we we saw an awful shooting in Nashville. Just needless, mindless, senseless suffering. Almost every week I talk to a parent whose, whose child is getting bullied and just senseless. We've seen the terrible things that happen, whatever that happens. There's no reason for that. And Jesus says, as he goes to his passion, he says no to all the evil that the world inflicts. And he calls us to come and stand next to him and to say no to all of that as well. To stand up for those who suffer. His passionate love led him to suffer and die for our sake so that others might not suffer as well, and so that we might be set free. And so this is how Luke says it. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I command my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last for our sake. And the passion that drove him, that led him to enter Jerusalem as a king, led him to suffer, to be tortured, to die on the cross as a criminal. And yet because of that, we are free. Because of that, we know that our suffering is not in vain. Because Jesus enters into it for our sake. 
And whenever we think about that, whenever we think about what does the cross mean, how are we set free, how does all of that work, we have different ways of explaining that. You know, we talk about Jesus died for our sins and and what that means, and there are different ways of explaining that. We call them atonement theories, and they're helpful, they're important. But, uh, But at the end of the day, what it means is that Jesus sets us free. He sets us free. This is how theologian Rowan Williams says it. He says, all we need to know is that whatever it took and takes for us to be set from our destructive and deceitful traps has been done through what happened on Good Friday. It's done. We are free. We're free from all of it because of his love for us, because of his love for every single one of us, including the lepers whom he healed, who he had no business associating with, and yet who we went to and welcomed, including the tax collectors, the evil ones. Jesus sets free the ones who had turned their backs on their people and got rich at the expense of others. Jesus reached out to women and set them free and invited them into leadership roles in the church. Jesus even set free the one who would betray him, the one who he invited to his table and who turned him in for a bag of silver. He set free the ones who abandoned him. He set free the one who denied him. He set free the Roman soldiers who crucified him and even the one who was next to him on the cross. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did Jesus say? Today you will be with me in paradise because of his passion for us, for every single one of us. From the highest to the lowest, from the Pharisee to the tax collector, from the disciples to the Roman soldiers, every single one, we're free. And what looked like a defeat as Jesus hung from the cross became his victory. That's what we'll talk about next Sunday. And so here are the action steps I want to invite you to take this week. So I want to invite you to take time each day this week to remember Jesus' passion for all people You can do that with our app, with the daily reading and reflection. We'll have our sanctuary open um, from 11 to 1 on Wednesday. You can come and pray. And I hope that you'll make it a priority to be here, if at all possible, for Good Friday, because there's not a crown without a cross. And we need to experience that and to remember his love for us, that he died for us and everyone who still suffers today. And then just as Jesus stood up for those who suffer, I want to invite you to stand up for someone who is suffering, because there are way too many. There are way too many, and we can do something, and in fact, he invites us to. And no matter who you are, no matter what gifts you have, whether young or old, Jesus calls you to it, and he will equip you and guide you so that all people might be free. We pray with me? God, I thank you for our king who came to set us free. And though what happened during that week didn't look like what the people thought it would, that it ultimately brought about your salvation. So God, I pray that you would bring that about in our hearts as well, that you would change us, and that through us, you might change the world, so that all who suffer might experience your grace, your healing, and your love. We thank you for Jesus' love. We thank you for his passion for all people. And we thank you that he taught us even how to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. 
and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.